you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Today's episode marks the beginning of a five-week series where I'll be sharing details of the framework I use to create interactive science lessons for student-centered learning in my very own virtual high school chemistry class. Our topic today is review and preview. Now, if you'd like to get a sneak peek at what's to come throughout this month, you can download the free guide that provides a summary and some tips for how to build each one of the five elements yourself. The guide is called, no surprises here, Five Elements of Effective Interactive Science Lessons for Student-Centered Learning. And you can download it on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash the number five elements. No spaces, no dashes. www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. Some of the elements described in that guide might be strategies you already incorporate into your own classes. I'm not sure that any of them are entirely unique or groundbreaking. As a scientist by training, though, I see each of them as analogous to an aspect of the scientific method. And for me, the innovation has been in putting them all together, being consistent in delivering the, quote, lab in every lesson. So you might find that some of the strategies you've used before, and you'll only want to tune into the show for those that you really find interesting or have less experience with. If you're anything like me, though, you'll take heart in just getting another perspective. Here we go. The very first element in each of my interactive science lessons is something my students have come to fondly refer to as review preview. Now, if you've ever downloaded any of my lessons, the slides are actually labeled review and preview, but I don't know, in 
the lazy fashion of today's lingo, I guess I've shortened that myself to review slash preview. In its most basic form, review preview is a warm-up activity in that it happens at the very beginning of class. Some of you might know it as a bell ringer. I don't know. I see bell ringers for sale on the Teachers Pay Teachers Marketplace, and I wonder what they are. <laughs> That's terminology I'm not entirely familiar with, and I've never purchased any of them to know exactly what they look like. But I'm imagining that's the essence of review preview. In my class, it's a challenge my students encounter as soon as they enter class. For those of you who might be listening to me for the first time today, I teach in a virtual cyber charter school. When my students, quote, enter class, they're actually just logging into my meeting software. Since all students enter class at different times, some 10 minutes early, some on time, some a few minutes late, Review Preview has really filled a gap for me in providing that sort of subliminal psychological message that they should get engaged as soon as they arrive. Now, there are many students who go back to class back to back all day long at my school. And that definitely gets hard when you're doing school on the computer all day. So if they're logging in early, it's often so that they just aren't logging in late and being marked tardy. It's not uncommon for them to log in and then physically step away for a little while just to get a stretch or a drink or a snack or a bathroom break. But when they return, they've got something to do. And it's not just something to do. It's never a crossword puzzle. It's never a word find. It's not busy work. For me, it serves multiple purposes. Before I get into what those are, I want to share with you how it was born as an important element in my lesson planning for student-centered learning. Now, I've talked at length about the visible learning text. So again, if you're new here, episodes two to five might be helpful for you to take a listen to. In them, I highlighted some aspects of a text that inspired this framework I'm speaking on. The text is called Visible Learning, What Works Best to Optimize Learning in Science. And it does outline a taxonomy the authors believe can be applied for students K through 12. The authors are John Hattie, John Almarode, and others, if you're interested in checking that out. Anyway, within the first few pages, the authors cite another educational researcher whose name is Graham Newthall. Now, he wrote this book called The Hidden Lives of Learners, and I haven't read that one myself yet, but it's high on my reading list, so you might hear more about that soon. Anyway, the authors of Visible Learning cite Graham Newthall in this book as having proclaimed that, quote, students already know 60% of what we expect them to learn in our classrooms every year. So if I were writing this in a blog or we were in a video, like insert shocked face here. <laughs> when I initially read that, Admittedly, my mind turned on it for days, maybe even weeks. I teach high school chemistry, right? Those that have been through it as adults 
or even college students, you know, they can rarely claim they retained what they learned there. So many people act like it's such difficult content. It was obvious to me that my students would not know much about nuclear fission, electronegativity, or partial pressures. These just aren't run-of-the-mill common concepts. They don't show up in a lot of mainstream reading that students do on their own time or are even assigned in other classes in their schoolwork. So I was definitely reluctant to accept this notion. But I suspected it went deeper than the obvious. At my cyber charter school, and in my position in particular, I had believed and tried to convince my peers and my principal the exact opposite of this whole 60% thing. It was in fact my experience that because my school has very few science electives to take as alternatives to college prep sciences like chemistry and physics, too many students were enrolled who weren't adequately prepared for the challenges of the course in a way that would allow them to meet reasonable academic goals. And that's kind of a fancy way for me to say they weren't adequately prepared to not fail. It took a lot for them to pass. Choosing to believe my students held 60% of the knowledge I was charged with delivering them each year was therefore very purposeful. It did not come naturally. Still, I thought, if they actually know 60%, that's more than half. If they actually know 60% of what I'm going to teach, I can challenge them to do so much more with our time together. As it turns out, adopting that 60% mindset was the only thing that allowed making the switch to student-centered learning possible for me. Even then, it was unnerving at best. (laughs) There were days I might have actually held my breath while I waited for students to complete activities, shuddering to think that they might refuse to do it completely, or that the majority would claim, I just don't understand. I went prepared to every lesson with an answer key completed and ready to share in case of crickets. And because I was clinging to that 60% notion with pure, unsubstantiated trust, I felt the need to test it. So my first iteration incorporating review preview into my interactive science lessons meant issuing um, pre-quiz of sorts. The goal there was to activate their prior knowledge, if they had any, and review that data quickly before I started the lesson to determine the level of differentiation I wanted to apply to the experience I had planned. So, psst. (laughs) If you haven't checked out my episode on differentiation, I'm pretty sure that was episode four. Can I just say mind-blowing? Definitely check that out if you haven't. But back to review preview and that whole experiment. I played with a variety of technologies to administer these pre-quizzes so I could get data lickety-split and make decisions on the fly. They were usually very short, the pre-quizzes, only one or two questions, and they were always multiple choice 
because they were always taken directly from old exit tickets I'd used or even old unit tests. The results honestly astounded me. One of the first times I was totally shocked, I was preparing to teach electrostatic attraction in a lesson I called Forces of Attraction. It was the, only the first week or two of the school year. The pre-quiz had three questions. On the first question, I gave a list of four pairs of ions. So like option A was a positive charge element paired with a negative charge element. And option B was two positively charged elements, like different elements, sodium plus, you know, and calcium plus two. Option C was two negative ions, maybe chlorine minus and oxygen minus. Maybe the final option didn't have any charges at all and it was totally neutral. And the question was, which one of these pairs would attract each other? The second question in the pre-quiz assessed the same concept, but took an entirely written word form where I asked what an electronically neutral substance contained and the options were all written out. So option A said a positive and negative ion, uh, I didn't use the word ion, a positive and negative atom, a positive, positively charged and negatively charged atom, a positively charged atom and a positively charged atom, etc. So all those different combinations. The final question actually shared a Bohr diagram with, and that's the planetary model, the solar system model of the atom, with a short description, like a legend, for what the symbols represented. So instead of all the protons and neutrons in the center, I just had a big circle that represented the nucleus, and I put a number in there. Um, and then there were the little dots around in the orbitals. And they had to choose the electrically neutral Bohr model. So if you can imagine those three questions, you can probably see what I was trying to do there. I wasn't just testing Graham Neuthal's assertion about 60%. I wanted to know, really, how deep that prior knowledge could have gone. Was it purely definition, like language-based? Or could they correctly answer the question with chemistry symbolism that they may have never seen before? Guess what? Nearly half of the students earned 100% on that pre-quiz. Slightly less than half answered two of the three questions correctly. With the ion symbol question, so the actual Na plus Cl minus, which pairs go together, that was the most missed question. And that was totally understandable uh, because it was the most content specific, right? The most sophisticated, really. But being able to answer these questions, all three of them, were the learning goals for the lesson. These questions came from my old unit tests. And I was asking them at the beginning of the lesson where I was going to teach it. So I shared this with my team of four other chemistry teachers at the time to see if I missed something along the way as we've been studying vertical alignment of science curriculum within our school. I wondered, would they have seen this somewhere else before? And they all agreed, even with some of them having been through their own chemistry courses in their own school districts, their teenagers, they probably wouldn't have seen it before. <laughs> they shouldn't have or wouldn't have, at least not in our school or in our experiences with the Pennsylvania State Standards of Chemistry. 
And so <clears throat> this was all it took for me. <laughs> I was completely bought in. Graham Newthall had me hook, line, and sinker. What I did with that was transform it to not only activate the prior knowledge students enter class with, but to also integrate it into the lesson. The activate portion was represented by concepts and questioning that should have been review for students in the course. Whereas the integrate portion was represented by concepts and questioning that challenges students to extend their prior knowledge into the topic of the day. Now, incorporating prior knowledge as an instructional strategy takes a few different forms. In the visible learning text, they list, quote, leveraging prior knowledge and, quote, integrating prior knowledge. While the text doesn't formalize the difference between those, I believe that I'm doing both of those things using review and preview in this way. Leveraging and integrating prior knowledge are not accomplished with crossword puzzles and word finds. They are not accomplished with the busy work. The effect sizes for strategies using prior knowledge are pretty great too. I mean, for leveraging prior knowledge, the effect size calculated by the authors is 0.65. And that for integrating prior knowledge is 0.93. Remember, an effect size of 0.4, according to the authors of Visible Learning, represents a year worth of learning. So effect sizes of 0.65 and 0.93 nearly or more than double that. So according to the research, my review and preview strategy is going to contribute significantly to learning gains in my classroom. Part of my goal in making this shift was to provide myself the opportunity to string together concepts within my curriculum. I wanted to spiral chemistry in an effort to enhance retention and deeper understanding by continually revisiting connecting concepts. But I didn't always use the review portion of review preview to activate prior chemistry knowledge. I often just use it to pull in experiences students were familiar with. In doing that, I was able to connect with them, you know, on a human level, which as a remote cyber school teacher is exceedingly important. And I was able to show them how what they already knew could help them think through what they didn't yet know. When they discover that they've successfully reasoned out a problem, before even being taught how to work it. There's an I can do this feeling, a self-confidence that propels them through the remainder of the lesson. And it's exactly in this way that I like in review preview to the hypothesizing step of the scientific method. When we hypothesize, we make educated guesses. We use information we already have whether it's experience or textbook facts, to make another choice. And in review preview activities, I ask students to do the exact same thing, except that which I'm asking them about, hypothesizing, relates directly to the standard-based concept 
or topic for the lesson on that specific day. Let's give you some examples of what this looks like in my lab and every lesson chemistry curriculum. And I do apologize for those of you listening who may not be well versed in the nuances of chemistry to fully appreciate the connections here, but trust they are there. I'll try to choose some from my lessons in the pervasive principles unit. This unit is a foundational unit I teach at the beginning of the year for exactly this purpose. So I can continually spiral back on concepts like physical and chemical properties, electrostatic attraction, temperature and conservation laws during review preview in what might seem like unrelated lessons later in the year. So first, let's consider my mass, volume, and density lesson. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? <laughs> They're going to learn mass, volume, and density. Now, in a conventional chemistry class, of course, they might focus on this as a lab. You're going to go to your, to your lab bench and weigh out some stuff on your balance. You're going to use your graduated cylinders to dispense amount of liquid. And I have to rely on a virtual lab activity for all of that. But there is this component of concept, especially with density, that you're not entirely going to achieve with measurements on the lab bench. And that's really what my lesson is going to focus on. So the review preview question at the start of this class is, which of these cereals is most dense? And I shoot two pictures. One is a bowl of cold cereal flakes with milk. And the other is hot cooked oatmeal. On the top, it's got some raisins and stuff. In addition to asking them which is more dense, which is something they should most definitely understand and does tie to the learning goals, they should also be able to explain why. And if they can explain why at the beginning of the lesson, they'll be able to explain why at the end. And if they can explain why at the beginning, the challenge or the new learning goal will be for them to use the sophisticated technical language that they, they learn and practice in the lesson to do so. Nearly all students choose the oatmeal as their most dense cereal option, explaining usually that there are no, quote, holes, or they'll say there are no spaces around the oatmeal cluster. You know, the oatmeal, it's like a big sludge. And this represents review of what they know. Ideally, at the end of the lesson, I want them to discuss how tightly particles are packed together in a defined volume. So it's not just about the spaces or the holes, but also the amount of space taken up. And that's the preview of where they're going. My laws of conservation lesson, review preview, calls less upon experienced knowledge like the serial scenario and more on prior learned knowledge or reasoned knowledge as it pertains to specific technical language may be learned before my class. So as a means of what, what have you learned in earlier years. In showing students two images, one with a cartoon woman holding a ball over a ledge and the other with the cartoon woman dropping the ball over a ledge. So here I ask them to label the energy of the ball in each scenario kinetic energy, or potential energy. And, and, explain with words why they matched them the way they did. 
This particular review preview was written as both. Truly review and preview. More of a diagnostic so I can determine how many students have encountered the terminology before. It also, however, represents the learning goals, the outcomes they need to master having interacted with the lesson. My direction of heat flow and phase changes lesson, review preview, is a little different than each of these examples. It was definitely intended to spiral in prior knowledge that I had already taught my students. By the time I taught this lesson, which is within the first month of school, they would have finished the electrostatic attraction lesson in which they learned what holds particles together and the temperature lesson in which they learned what the temperature of matter really represents, the speed or the kinetic energy, the movement of particles. So stuck togetherness and movement. The review preview challenges them to label a very busy diagram with water shown in three phases. Each phase is contained in a closed jar as particles and is depicted in the form we find familiar, like ice for solid, like ice cubes for solid, a glass with water splashing up for liquid, and clouds for gas, because that's the best we can do to show water vapor, right? Each of these phases is labeled for them, solid, liquid, gas, with not just the full words, but also the parenthesis, the parenthetical um, symbolism, S, L, and G because that symbolism they may or may not have seen before, but they will definitely see it again in my class. So I, I plant little seeds along the way too, very important. On top of each of the phase pictures, they need to assign two numbers. The first ranks the phases by extent of attractive forces between the particles, one through three, with one being little and three being lots. The second ranks the phases by extent of particle movement. Again, one to three, with one being little and three being lots. So they're ranking the stuck togetherness and they're ranking the movement. Now between the phases are arrows representing phase change. Solid to liquid, liquid to gas, and solid to gas. Then on the other side, you know, instead of all on the top, then we go backwards, all on the bottom, the arrows. Gas to liquid, liquid to solid, gas to solid. And I provide a word bank of terminology used to describe these changes and have students assign those terms to each arrow. So we're talking melting and freezing, evaporating and condensing, subliming and depositing. And my expectation at the time is that they won't know about subliming depositing, however, they will know about the rest. And they could do a little process of elimination there, you know. But up until now, everything I've asked them to do is review. It integrates prior knowledge that I know they have because I taught them. <laughs> we went through it. The preview portion, leveraging that prior knowledge, comes when I ask them to assign each arrow, each phase change arrow, with another label. You know, where they wrote um, the phase change description like evaporate or condense. Now they have to label it with energy gained or energy lost. Now they have a basic understanding of energy from temperature, and they have the experience knowledge 
from knowing that an ice cube goes from solid to liquid. It melts when it raises its temperature. So there's lots of different pieces of prior information going on here. The ultimate goal of this lesson is to explore the specific terminology exothermic and endothermic and to present those as processes involved in conservation of energy. Not just chemical reactions, but processes. It's, it's a really challenging task that prompts them to raise the expectations they have for themselves. The effect size for that's a whopping 1.44, remember. It lets them know I hold them to a high standard. The effect size for teacher expectations, 0.4. You know, just because it's 0 0.4 doesn't mean we're not making gains. That's one year of learning goals there, that I have high expectations for them. And this type of activity, it's more exciting and engaging than a pre-quiz. It's inviting them into learning, but providing me with some really important diagnostic data I can just as easily use to drive instruction and differentiation of the more application-based learning experience they're going to encounter next in my lesson. Of course, it would be my recommendation, because this is what I do, to use Review Preview as an opportunity to provide real-time feedback. Real-time feedback, according to our visible learning authors, has an effect size of 0 0.7. And outside of their research, I can tell you that the trust and respect I gain from my students in offering that real-time feedback in the love that they feel from that is just off the charts. Okay, so anecdotal note there. If you can give feedback to individuals or small groups as they work on these warm-ups, great! In my practice, I provide usually five minutes for students to complete the review preview activity. If I think the writing aspect might present a challenge, or I'm watching them and everything, everyone's going pretty slow. Or I want them to write their response in a specific way according to a specific uh, rubric or style. Then I'll probably give them 10 minutes because there's that added complication, that added expectation. However much time passes for review preview, I use it to collect student responses. In my cyber charter school, that looks like actually making copies of whiteboard screens and bringing them back to a main area where I can scroll through them, usually with no student names represented on that work, and comment on what's great, what's good, and what needs improvement. In that way, Review Preview can become a lesson unto itself. Certainly, in my chemistry class, as the fundamentals become more application-based, I personally have a tendency to stick around and review preview a little bit too long. Now, one thing I forgot to mention in describing to you how this technique, this element was incorporated into my lessons, was the fact that in a cyber school like mine, which endeavors to provide the most individualized experience as possible, students often have longer periods of time to complete homework and assessments without grade penalties. Since they may not have to submit a homework assignment for an entire week, it's impossible for me to review that homework assignment with the entire class as a means of remediation until we're sometimes off into another topic or even a new unit. I personally prepare and provide video tutorials explaining the homework solutions 
which reveal themselves once a student submits, submits the assignment. It's an automatic trigger and I can program for that. But it doesn't substitute for real-time feedback in my opinion. And it doesn't redirect students quickly enough to ensure they won't continue making the same mistakes with the content or standard-based skills. So Summer Review Preview truly was born out of necessity for me. And I'd be remiss if I didn't add here at the end that students love it. I survey myself, I survey them on my performance four times a year, three times a year, I guess, after each marking period. And I bill that to them as, you know, I send them a progress report, so they need to share one with me. And I have a certain series of questions that I ask. And one is, you know, from my five elements, and, and maybe some other things I might throw in there, of each lesson, what do they love? What do they hate? What would they hate to see go? And what would they love to see stay? And it has been, and that's usually an open-ended question, you know, with some ideas for suggestion answers. I truly have been alarmed at the number of students who write in review preview as a, it helps me so much, don't get rid of this kind of element. So really what started as a test, as a challenge for me, as a prove it to myself has turned out to be one of the, you know, most important staples of these five elements I'm going to share with you. So as we close out this episode, let me quickly summarize for you review preview. Review and preview. One, it's a meaningful warm-up activity that should not take more than five or ten minutes. Five to ten minutes, somewhere in there. Two, it's designed to both incorporate prior knowledge and leverage it to build new learning on top of it. Review, preview. Three, it should provide a comfortable challenge. Four, it should provide the opportunity for real-time feedback in the form of redirection or praise. Can't overstate the need for praise. And number five, I don't know if you see this one coming or not, it should be incorporated into every lesson. My humble opinion. <laughs> if you have questions or would like otherwise to respond to this episode, you can direct message me in the Lab in Every Lesson community. And that's located at community.labineverylesson.com or email me at lisa, L-I-S-A, at labineverylesson.com. Remember that you can download that entire guide that contains a summary of all five elements of effective interactive science lessons on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. That's the number five, the word elements, no spaces, no dashes. Okay, plan to meet me back here next week to discuss the second element of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning, learning intentions, and success criteria. And don't forget, to do this, I made my classroom my learning laboratory. So keep experimenting, because what you do and how you do it, it matters. <laughs>